Hey everyone, before we begin this week's episode, I'd like to ask you all a shameless favor. If you could take a minute to rate the podcast five stars on iTunes and leave a review, it would really help us get the word out about the show and help others find it. We'd also like to invite you to join the conversation. If you have a topic that you would like us to cover, send us an email at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can either write in or record your suggestion. Either way is fine. Who knows? You may be featured on an upcoming episode. Now, on with the show. The Queen's Jewish Link presents the Jewish Living Podcast, the show that examines the many facets of Orthodox Jewish life. Here's your host, Izzo Zwerin. If you're like me, you constantly think about financial issues. As an Orthodox parent, I'm always worried about the cost of living. Mortgage or rent, health care, car payments, clothing for my children, not to mention the costs associated with my Orthodox lifestyle, tuition, kosher food, shul memberships, all of these come to mind. The problem is that these costs seem to be going up faster than the average income. In our community, we often hear the complaints and many people are having to make the choice between a Jewish education for their children and other necessities of life. However, there are two men in Los Angeles that aren't just doing what we all do, complain about the strains of from life. They are taking a proactive approach to it. And today on the Jewish Living Podcast, we sit down with them. Hi, my name is Zach Morrow. I work in nonprofit, specifically in the Jewish community. My name is Benny Smith. I work in insurance and financial services, helping people with life, disability, long-term care insurance. And we're here because we got together a group of people from our synagogue to talk about affordability in Los Angeles. We wrote an article about it. We've started a bunch of conversations about it, focused on there's a need to make a change in the way that our community functions, and whether that's to leave or to stay and grow, things can't stay the way they are. Spoiler alert, Benny and Zach aren't going to solve your financial issues in this episode, but they are discussing possible real-world solutions to the growing financial burdens on the next generation. So, Zach and Benny, thank you guys so much for joining us. For those listening, we've had a little bit of a snafu trying to get this conversation off the ground, but I'm glad we were able to make this happen. So as you mentioned, you guys are taking on this issue in Los Angeles, which is affordability and from life, I guess, as a combination. By no means, though, is this a topic that is unique to Los Angeles. I feel like this happens all over the country. But what I like about you guys is that you're actually taking on the task of meeting this issue head on. So give us a little bit of background about your role here. So when did you guys decide to start putting this together and, and how did you go about doing it? So our, our show in the summer, uh, B'nai David Judea, they have a, a weekly series. Um, since Shabbat ends late, it's called Nash and Drash, where they basically have different topics. It meets in different places, usually different homes in the community. And so there was someone who's interested in putting this together for a Nash and Drash series reached out to me since it was something I tried to do last year. And then through that, we had a Nash and Josh, although this met on a Sunday instead of a Shabbat, because there was a lot of financial talk, uh, I guess, throughout. We had four people on the panel. Zach represented the millennial voice. Uh, we had someone who was a, a, a boomer who had lived through it with three kids, uh, with sending the kids to day school and a home in the community. We had a real estate agent and we had a head of school. And so uh, we had we asked them a bunch of different questions, ranging from why does day school cost so much? What can we do to sort of um, change, I guess, view, different either views or expectations of living in the community? What advice do you have for since you, you live through it? What, do you, what advice do you have to uh, the younger generation? And as millennials, like, what are we sort of think? What are we thinking and how are we going to do this? Um, we probably had about a hundred people there. And then at the end, one person came up, uh, stood up and asked questions. So, you know, we've all had these conversations individually. Why don't we have this as a group, uh, for the, for those who are interested. So from that, Zach and I put together, uh, we sent out an email to the young professionals in our show asking if they're interested in meeting. Uh, and so we probably had about 20 people, our first meeting and another 20 people, our second meeting of th this is the issue in front of us. And what, what can we do and what are we going to do about this uh, in, in our community? You mentioned a lot of different directions that you came from for this. You had, you had your millennials, you had your baby boomers, you had a bunch of different, but in terms of the actual project, are you focused primarily 
on the millennial generation or is there things that other generations can either take out of this or add to? I would put in there, I mean, the group that we've convened, there's a heavy concentration of millennials, uh, but the people we've reached out to and spoken to um, are really the other way, the people who have uh, reached out and spoken to us, there are people who are an older generation, right? I would say uh, maybe older Gen X, right? Like who are saying like, we've been trying to make this work in Los Angeles and it's clearly not for us. So we're moving to somewhere else, right? Um, An example of someone who reached out to us recently and said, hey, we're moving to the Valley, uh, which is still part of Los Angeles, but can be cheaper um, depending on where. And said like, we're gonna, we can rent a house for the price of renting a condo. You know, we still may not own anything, but um, if we wanted to build a shul in their house, we could start there um, and then build out and grow something larger. Um, what we've tried to do is be very open to the idea of like building something really big or not necessarily in, in people leaving, but in working with the community. Um, and one of the things we've, we've tried to do is have a, a strong call to action to legacy organizations, philanthropists who are across the age spectrum that like, we need to find a better alternative of something to do here, right? It's not that like all of these people should leave. It's not that some should stay, some should go. It's like there needs to be a better solution here. Um, we'd like to see involvement across the age spectrum. And what expenses primarily are you focused on? I would imagine that there's a bunch of expenses that are unique to the from population, but which expenses are you kind of focusing your energies on uh, helping out improve or seeing if there's another way to work around them? Well, as, as I'm going to take it away from Zach, even though I mean Zach talks about this probably better the the best, but you know there's a we all look at have a basically a triangle that we try to uh, achieve. So there's housing, there's education, and then there's retirement planning or savings. Those are the main three things I would say that at least that we and our I guess our cohort try to accomplish. Obviously, I mean you can always build that out once you have some of once you're able to really achieve those, you can obviously build that out into you know other shapes with uh, more points. But um, so th- those are the three main things that 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 we're trying to accomplish and in, L- in LA. So for people in our generation, it's very rare for someone to own anything. Um, if they do, uh, and so, okay, so let, well, first we'll start with rent. Before you get to that, just so our listeners know, how old are you guys, if you don't mind me asking? Because like, we don't know well, what your generation is. We're 30. You're both 30, okay. But worth noting, like I, I'm 30 and relatively newly married. And uh, Benny just had his daughter um, and has had like a whole different level of consideration in his mind as to his, you know, what life costs. Mazel to both of you. Uh, yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but in, in, in this group, we have people ranging from 25 who are just a couple years out of college who are really focused on their careers to people who have multiple children who are in their mid to late 30s. So you mentioned that you're trying, I'm going to call it a trinity of expenses, the education, the home affordability, and the saving for retirement. We could talk about the other things that that might come out of that later on. Maybe we will get to them, maybe we won't. But those are the three we're going to be basically dealing with because I feel like those are the things that you guys are primarily focused on. I would assume that any Jewish family, if they are going to cut one of those things in favor of the other two, majority of the time is going to be saving for retirement. And honestly, I don't think that's unique to the Jewish people. I think that's something that in America that if you're going to cut an expense, it's going to be saving for retirement. It's a problem that we have across the board in America, not just in our population. But I'm going to assume that saving for retirement is something that gets thrown by the wayside. Correct me if I'm wrong on that. Am I wrong on that? No, I, I think you're totally right. The The real estate agent on the panel was like, yeah, we own our home, but I haven't contributed to my retirement vehicle for like since my 20s. Which... Right. Yeah, which I mean, and while it is, I mean, and I see this all the time, while it's thrown by the wayside, it's one of those things that, um, I mean, we're all, our generation will work longer. Um, By the the fact that, you know, our incomes are are, are lower, we're healthier, medicine medicine and technology can continue to better, our generation will work longer. But how are people ever, eventually, you know, you have to stop working, and whether it's because you're too sick or whether it's, Force retirement, whatever it may be, but how are we gonna? It's it's while while it's the first thing that's cut, it's one of those things that it, it will end up, for lack of a better word, screwing a lot of people in the generation. I definitely agree with you. I, I want to push a little bit more on that. 
for those of us out there that are younger, that aren't married yet, don't have kids yet, I'm assuming it's extremely important for them to start saving now while they, while they don't have a lot of other expenses. What percentage of people that are younger or that aren't married and that aren't even older do you think are, are saving right now or at least saving enough? I mean, no one, I think you could say no one's ever saving enough. Oh yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I remember in New York, I would hear people all the time, even, even out here, people all the time. It's like, well, I, I don't, I can't afford to put any money away because I have all these other things that I need to do. And so some of those things, it's like, well, you need to pay rent, which, okay, you need to live, you know, do you need to go, do you need to pay for lunch every day? Do you need to go on this trip that's going to cost X amount of money? Can you like... There, there are plenty of there are plenty of things that we do that we can cut. Um, Zach knows is able again to speak about these things better. But as as a generation, there's a lot more of an experiential feeling, which you know has its cons to it in terms of like, well, what are you going to do 50 years from now? <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, there are smaller things that we do on a, on a regular basis, large Shabbos meals with a lot of guests. It comes to mind as to be one of the things that we somehow do every week. We're coming up on Thanksgiving now. This uh, episode is definitely going to air after that. But we're recording right before Thanksgiving that the secular world tends to do these large family and friend get-togethers a couple times a year. We do them every week. So, yeah, that's definitely something that we can talk about as a saving. But that's, that, I feel like that's smaller in terms of when you're comparing it to buying a house and sending your kid to school. So I want to focus a little bit more on those couple of things. I mentioned before that the first thing that gets cut of those three is retirement savings. In your basic experience on this, what do you think is the second thing that's cut? Is it saving for a home or buying a home, or is it a Jewish education for the kids? I think we might have a different answer on this one. I think it varies. It really does vary, yeah. Is there a pattern? Like, these types of people would, are more likely to cut the Jewish education. These types of people are more likely to cut the home ownership. Uh, I think across the country, it varies. You know, we're seeing... In uh, cities around the country, vouchers are becoming available. So the likelihood of you choosing um, to not send your kid to Jewish day school is, is becoming less likely. What's really interesting in LA, there are starting to pop up alternative options for Jewish day school, um, right? So especially with the younger kids, there's a program out here called uh, Nagel Academy or Nagel. I'm not, it's Nagel. I, actually not. It's not? It's not. Um, I thought it was, oh. N-A-G-E-L Academy. Sorry, oh, if, somebody, that, right? if somebody out there is from N-E-G-L Academy that can correct us on the uh, pronunciation, you're more than welcome to write into the show. <laughs> right. Um, but it's a, it's essentially a young, um, there's a lot of Torah study available for aftercare after public school. And there are options that are slowly creeping up here or there. Hebrew High has been a huge option, um, and their enrollment has been strong, um, even when other supplementary education initiatives have fallen by the wayside in recent years. I think housing, especially in LA, where rent control is, is in, especially in Jewish areas, is a pretty strong initiative. There are definitely people who opt to stay in, a, in their apartment for as long as they're going to, because they'd much rather afford Jewish day school than they would the other way. So I, I think it's just a values-based decision. And you said that, Ben, you might have a different answer. No, I mean, I, I, I think a different answer in terms of what people would choose. I mean, I think I, I would say exactly the same thing as Zach. It, really, it, it depends on what each family values or prioritizes more, is what they're going to decide to do. There, I, I know plenty of people who, said, who have said, you know, I, I want to send my kids to day school because of, you know, all of the things that they'll get from there, the identity and this and that. And then other people who said, I'm, I'm saving up to buy a house and I might go to public school. My gut runs to there are there are sort of like archetypes of, of Jews that I would not expect to make the option to sacrifice the Jewish day school. Um, and I feel surprised by more and more of them opting out of that. Right. So if you're coming from a farther right perspective, you may be willing to opt out of traditional Jewish day school to opt for something a little bit more. I mean, to like go to public school or take uh, opportunities for learning, which is a, um, essentially like you use your laptop to graduate high school. Um, but at the same time, you could be enrolled in some type of Jewish study program. You're seeing that more from the right? No, what I'm saying is that I think I see that option as growing in the right. Something that surprises me that it is growing, oh. right? Like in the right, I feel like I feel like on the left, you it, the assumption is that they're more likely to opt for a secular option. And I'm saying on the right, they're not necessarily op opting for secular as much as they are opting out of traditional space into something that's a little bit more creative. 
Okay. So let's talk about the Jewish education costs. So I did a little bit of research before here. There's a vast difference in spending between New York and California on uh, public school. So New York is near the top of spending on students, about 22000 I saw even 23000 per student, whereas California is a little over 10000 the most recent that I was able to, to pick up. As a matter of fact, I think only Alaska and Vermont beat New York in terms of percentage of dollars spent on education in terms of states. What's the cost of Los Angeles day schools versus, let's say, New York day schools, New York Jewish day schools, and versus California public schools? I mean, um, if you're looking at sending your kid, I mean, that just take a couple different groups. Um, I mean, California is free, right, um, to go to send your kids to public school. Right. Um, in terms of the cost per kid, um, there are estimates that are between nine to twelve or $13,000 per kid is what the annual cost is. When you start looking at private schools, um, a lot of the Christian schools or the religious schools will come in um, between uh, twelve to twenty thousand dollars. The Catholic schools, sorry, um, between twelve to twenty to twenty thousand. And then when you start looking at Jewish day schools, there's a, a significant rise to somewhere between um, looking for one that like uh, like the lower tier at like twenty eight to thirty six. Wow. Um, to where Milken is, where I work, which is uh, $46,000. The tuition stuff is misleading, too, because it, it, the, the schools will say that they're like $36,000 and then they're another $5,000 in fees. So, like, that, the idea of these schools, if they ever say that they're 30, oh, I'm willing $36,000 is garbage because they all have at least three dollars to $4,000. I know I said five, but they have at least three dollars to $4,000 in fees that you shall have at... Uh, you know, boys, girls, and 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 so have it are all over forty thousand dollars all in. So, right. are you talking about the extra fees you're talking about are like building fees, dinner fees, uh, things like that? Exactly. Yeah. So okay. yeah. Or security, 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 security right? Like the dinner. If you were to talk about optional opt-ins, right? Like there's even more that you can add on to, right? Forget the dinner fee, right? The dinner fee, like your annual donation, whatever it is. I think. One of the things I'm proudest of what we do at school is like we want participation, but the participation can be $18 to our annual fund. We don't ask of anything else. <clears throat> that said, like if you were to go all in at Milken, you could easily add ten or eleven thousand dollars, right? We have a five thousand dollar Galapagos trip some kids go on. There's like five to six kids who go on it, but like that is an option if you're in our advanced wow. science tier. The the crazy part about that is more thinking about like the kid who goes in who's like really on scholarship. How do they make it work? We have, and I know Shal Hevet has a lot of initiatives put in place uh, for to afford optional opportunities for kids who are on scholarship. But nonetheless, you got to imagine what it's like being in that person's perspective, right? Sitting there like yeah, a scholarship kid, and that like everybody else afforded this. I don't, you know, how did they make it? Day schools, so like K through eight here. So the the big ones are my or the main Orthodox ones, because I mean, and the conservative ones are also in the same range. Um, so you have Maimonides, Yavna, and Hillel, and then you have uh, an Emek in the Valley. The conservative ones, the big ones, are um, Pressman and Sinai. I don't, I don't know Steve Messwise, but I assume it's in the same range. Yeah, but yeah. Those costs and they rise. So per like grade, yeah. K, like K through third is one, and then four through six, and then or whatever, or four and five, and then six through eight. Um, they range to about, I know Emic is the cheapest, um, but anywhere between like 22 to like $29,000, obviously with six through eight, the most expensive, right. as opposed to in other places, though, those costs were consistently in Jew other Jewish day schools in other cities were consistently between the 15 to $20,000 range. There was much less of a jump with the K through eight. Um, although even like newborn to kindergarten is also insanely expensive um, for something where you send your kid for like six hours a week. But <laughs> places it was about 50, yeah, 15 to 20 and, and then here's 22 to 27. Although high school in other places, even in New York, not counting SAR and Frisch, uh, is about $25,000. Right. Uh, That's exactly right. So, right. And here, here it's, it's $15,000 more than that. Right. So when we're talking about comparing the cost of sending to private school versus sending to public school, obviously it's zero dollars to send to public school. But 
the spending is what I'd rather focus on. Where are yeshivas and day schools spending that public schools aren't? Or what are we missing? How can schools kind of rationalize those costs? I would say you could look through um, any school's budget and pick it apart. Uh, but you're going to find uh, a couple things in common uh, across them. One, every school, their largest cost center is their staffing, right? And in Jewish day schools, you're paying for twice the staffing. That's before you get to how you have to pay them, right? So let's assume that your cost is already double um, whatever the local cost is, right? If you're paying uh, $12,000 a year here in Los Angeles for a public school, you have to pay double that in order to afford... A, you know, a slightly better facility, a, you know, um, double your teachers, whatever. Then you get into like how you compensate. In Los Angeles, teachers travel all over the right from wherever they live, which can be upwards of like 30, 40 miles in order to work wherever they're going to, right? It's not like they live right down the block right. um, from our school. In Los Angeles, we have people who drive an hour, hour and a half every day. Or at Milken, we have people who drive an hour, hour and a half every day in order to work right where we are. So, a lot of the Jewish day schools want people who will live inside of the Jewish community, which means in order for them to afford that, right, they then have to, like, they, they have to pay them enough to do so, right? right? And and I'm assuming you're talking about specifically more along the lines of the Limude Kodesh aspect. Yes, of course. I mean, I think most Jewish day schools pay their either Limude Kodesh, Kodesh staff more. Once you start doing that, you are, you can't pay the, the, you have to pay a competitive rate opposite other private schools. So you still have to have elevated costs in your secular tuition. Right. All of a sudden, your costs have risen astronomically, right? So like, put that as one issue on one side. The other is a series of values-based decisions that every school is going to make. As a Jewish people, we've been highly successful um, in a lot of different ways. And we really, one of the things that I would say is a hallmark of our tradition, our culture, our religion, um, is wanting the best for our children. And the best costs a lot of money. You know, I could run through a list of programs that exist across the city um, in different schools. But like, I mean, I remember growing up there, having a college guidance counselor was a really big deal. College counseling programs now do everything from like courses where you meet every day with a college guidance counselor to seminars on essay writing to travels across the country, all of which elevate the cost and are necessary in order to compete into getting into college. Let's not even get to the cost of college and what that means long term for a society. But if you're looking to get your, put your kid into, into like a great college, right, outside of YU that might have certain great scholarship options, that has a certain cost to it. Then get into like computer science being a huge field, right? Um, all of those are huge values-based decisions that add to your child's tuition. So when, when I think about, right, um, how do we think about schools and how do we lower the cost? My question is never how do we lower the cost, it's how do we lower the price? Um, we can spend a ton of time pointing at the schools saying your budgets are inflated, all of your people don't have to make this much, and sure, there's little bits that we can pull here or there, maybe different people who run schools need to make less money, um, but the amount that you're going to take out of their budget is not enough to really make up the difference in what they're, what they're doing. The reality is we need a drastic option to lower the price of tuition, right? We have to stop trying to tell the schools how much money they're allowed to spend per kid, and instead say, we need to lower the amount that we're charging families to send their kids to school, which means there's a magical option we need to find to fill the gap between what the school costs to create and what it costs for us to send our kids to go or the price tag that we pay. Now, could that mean more parents volunteering to do stuff that currently schools pay for? Or is there another way around that? So I was actually just in a, a presentation for like looking at different options and how you can, uh, there's essentially like six different pieces you can sort of pull on, um, six different levers you can play with to, to affect the value of school uh, or affect the cost of school or, or how much school costs. And most of them in Jewish day schools, you can't really touch, right? Because one of them is financial aid. Um, and no matter what cost is, right, financially, it's going to be really important. In fact, we kind of have to, we can't play with that lever to lower the price. We have to use the hour to up the price. We have to play with that lever to lower it. I think the, the biggest vehicles that we should be looking at are really endowments um, or other creative ways to use space. You know, Ari Siegel's done a lot of work at Shalhevet about, he has a word for it, uh, the gig sharing economy. 
um, focused on like how do we make this building work for other purposes and and subsidize um, our cost of existence. Um, and so they have a relationship with a synagogue that uses their space on Shabbat. That's been quite beneficial for them. But without a serious investment in endowments and long-term financial planning for these organizations, right, raising what's going to amount to be billions of dollars in Los Angeles so that students, you know, the money that just comes off of that money growing is enough to send kids to Jewish day school for, you know, half the cost of what it is now. Without that, we're looking at the costs continuing to rise on an astronomic basis. I mean, costs for Jewish education have risen. You know, what used to be a modest, you know, five to six percent increase is now looking at like 10 or 13 percent. And I think we see that in higher education, too. You're starting to see that in, in a lot of the private colleges are doing those types of increases also. Right. But there's no reason why going to a, a high school should cost significantly more than s- sending my kids to college. And right. it's not keeping up with inflation. Yeah. Right. And it's but keeping I, up cost of living increases. But if you're paying which, attention to a lot of the, the political debates now, the cost of higher education is also not keeping up with inflation. It's going way right. past it. I'm not saying right. that, I'm not I'm not defending that that the cost of no, no, no. education is going but up so, more, but yeah. it, it is and, a, it is a consistent thing. And, and the cost of college then factor in in terms of how much money am I, it goes back to how much money am I putting away? Because right. no one can afford, and I can't afford to to spend. If I my daughter wants to go to USC, I can't spend sixty thousand dollars today. Who knows? What, in right. eighteen years, it's just going to continue to. So yeah, it's it's it that, that that's why I mean, and I, I know we're not talking about this right now, but like putting the importance of putting money away for any of these things, because how are you going to afford, even 18 years from now, are you going to afford anything? But uh, it, it, going back to um, how to make it work, I mean, it's great that some of these schools individually come up with ideas of, you know, uh, so Shalhevet rents out their gym, which is, it's a short-term thing. That synagogue raised five, $10 million and they're building their own building and they're moving out. A, it seems that none of these schools communicate with each other to like, well, you know, we all have donors. What can we do to uh, maybe spread some of that wealth around in order for, you know, even even if my my child isn't a right fit for the school, I still want I still want them to go to a day school. So is that is that of importance to some of these people? But there are also also larger or what's the I mean, I, I, I haven't looked into this, but what's the OU doing? What's the, the the RCA doing? Like what what what? Yeah, we have we have a lot of these organizations, these national organizations, the RCA, the OU, Aguda. If you want to go a little bit more to the right, um, Aguda Israel. But like, yeah, there's what are all these organizations doing? Are there anything? I don't know. And maybe so at some point the, on this podcast, I can talk to those people. I mean, I'll I'll pipe in and, and just on the Jewish organizational spot. Um, I've worked in the Jewish community for a long time. For one of those organizations in particular, no Jewish organization, no leader of a Jewish organization. Um, has a, a good answer, which means that it's very hard for them to come to the table and say, like, let's actually fix this because it seems like it, it's massive and the effort that you need to get behind what is essentially a moonshot, right? Like the moonshot is, you know, the idea of like, how did we get to the moon? We decided to get there and then we figured out how. The idea of them doing that is just, it's it's beyond their their ability at this point, um, even though it's it really shouldn't be. It just seems like it's a lot larger than it is. And but and that and that's how these Catholic schools are so cheap. Oh, I mean, if you were to look at so, the model, like there's there's no reason why it can't work. And you know, it's great that now I don't know what's the whatever the latest thing is now kosher that the OU marked. But like, who who cares if I if I can't afford uh, like uh, Oreos aren't kosher, I'll survive. But if right. if if we're all worried about like the future of the Jewish people, how is this not a bigger problem? Or how is this not looked at with, uh, I mean, we have an OU conference in LA every year. This is, as far as I know, this has never been spoken about. And if it has, it's more of, oh yeah, this is a problem. And you know, no one's, out of the people who responded to our article, number one, in Los Angeles, we had one person who was in a Jewish nonprofit responded to us, which frankly is pathetic. Um, but even around the country, it was mo- it was mostly people of, hey, we're a small community and we've ki- and we've sort of made it work and figured it out. But why don't you look at us as a place to move? But in terms of organizational leadership saying, yeah, you know, this is a problem that, you know, we we want to fix. So we had two people who, who did that. But those are people in smaller communities who were also trying to figure out how to make that work there. 
But the, the fact that no one from the OU responded to us, no one from the RCA, no one from the Aguda, um, no one from any of these, or there's one one of the people is from the feder, a Federation of New Jersey. Like, how how can we make a difference when it seems that none of these people are even willing to come to the table? So I, I just want to push on one thing you said about the Catholic schools. I guess the archdiocese runs that. Do you, do you have any more insight of how Catholic schools are funded? I would actually, instead of looking at the archdiocese, I'd point you towards looking at the Mormons. Uh, I mean, I think the Mormons have figured it out real strong. They have a tithing system. Right. They, they literally took from us. You know, everyone gives 10 percent of what they have every year. And that pays for everything that pays through college. Your kid is paid for. Um, now, certainly, like, I don't think that we should have everything from the Mormons. There's plenty yeah, there's of a whole, the whole Jesus thing that we probably shouldn't touch. Yeah. And Joseph Smith, that's probably problematic. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like if you lose your job and you're a member of the Mormon church and like uh, active member who's pardon paying dues, they afford you the same lifestyle that you you had before. The church just pays you whatever salary you had. Which is what tzedakah is supposed to be. It, I mean, some, I'm, listen, I'm not saying that, you know, there's a, yet a Jewish organization that I want to tie 10% to that would completely figure it out. But, I mean, that's you're a, saying that the, that's a build the Mormon, the Mormon church, the, the Church of Latter-day Saints, I think, they're kind of cohesive in that regard. They're already a sect that they don't really have too much subsects that come out of it. You have one basic university that they all go to, BYU. They have kind of monopolized the Mormon name. We, as a, as a people, we have Haredi, and we have modern Orthodox, and we have Ashkenaz and Sephardi. We have a lot of different things going on that aren't going to be able to collect the same way that a church that is singularly followed is going to be able to collect. I, I, think I, would, I don't agree. The only thing I, I could say is that it would take time and effort to build the federation system into the right avenue. But I think you do see federations across the country who are putting their their hands into farther right groups. For a long time, that was their, their I think, one of the Federation's big challenges. They weren't really in touch with Sardi groups. Um, and it's growing over time, and it will continue to get better. That's the organizational system that really has not only the money, but the vision and the, the level of leadership, leader, of lay leadership that's able to carry out something as big of a challenge as we need. And the craziest part about it is, like, they're the, the organizations that are capable of doing something, but it's basically silence. I mean, I, I used to work at Federation here in LA. I heard from one or two people who worked there who were like, hey, this is really great. You know, congrats on publishing. You did great. Um, but not a word from leadership or from, you know, even like a head of a department saying like, like the focus is on education and engagement and the future of the Jewish people. Yeah, that is a problem. And I'm glad if you guys are the ones that are starting this conversation and starting to get maybe people noticing at these larger organizations that we mentioned, maybe the federations that, you, that you've mentioned or haven't mentioned yet. Uh, I think that's very worthwhile. But I want to move on to uh, home affordability, which is the third, because we already spoke about retirement and education. And the third of your three pillars of expenses is the home affordability. I want to give our listeners a little bit of a, of a boots on the ground experience of what's going on in LA. And I feel like a lot of it's going to be very similar to what's going on here in New York especially in the suburbs. Yeah, so there, there are a couple different communities in LA where people live. Um, there's the Pico, Ro Pico Robertson community, there is the uh, Hancock Park community, and then there's the Valley. Okay. Valley um, has a couple different areas in it, but for all intents and purposes, the, the, yeah, the whole, yeah, that's, that's right. fair. You're lucky that New Yorkers uh, know where LA is on a map. You can keep going. Right. So um, we're on the West Coast. So I didn't mean to insult all of my listeners there. I apologize. <laughs> most young people and uh, most young professionals live in the Pico Robertson area. I would say you have a lot of the Jewish restaurants are in this area. There are a bunch of different flavored shoals for people to go to, from you know all the way left leaning to all the way right leaning. And there's a lot of rental housing opportunities here. Okay. Hancock Park is, is mostly older, and then the, the Valley is also somewhat older, and there are some young people in the Valley, I, I would say mainly for affordability or family reasons. The, the hallmark of the Valley, or what people know the Valley for, is like that's the place where you go when you can't afford a place in the city, but you want to raise a family, right? So you've like just gotten married. Um, a lot of single people living in the Valley eventually move to the city, they get married, they then move back to the Valley. 
Um, oh, yeah, a, a classic like suburb place because city life is not affordable in New York either. At least from uh, if you want a house, you can't buy it really, really a house in a lot of the city places here in New York. The difference is in Los Angeles, where we live in in Pico, is not like we refer to it as the city, but it's not like living in Manhattan, right? We're right, so it's more like living in Queens. miles away from downtown LA and and that area. How how far away? I'm sorry, I missed that. Ten miles, but there's not there's there were about ten miles from it. But yeah, the the, the way that LA is built, and it, you're not really ever going to be, you can't really compare it to what whatever Manhattan is. I mean, you're, I'm sure your listeners could will understand that if they ever cross the Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll just point out that there are parts of New York City that are not affordable that aren't Manhattan. Right. Um, right. So I'm talking about like Brook a Brooklyn house is going to be you know in the high. Eight nine hundred thousand dollar, all the way up to multi million dollar houses. Right, right. Whereas if you move to the suburbs, it's a lot more affordable per square foot. Right. So the the problem with Los Angeles is that there's not for for the Jewish community itself, there's not really a suburb for people to move to that would be that would still be affordable that actually has a anything more than a Chabad. I would say. Okay. Um, so the community that we live in. So in Pico Robertson, you can't get a condo, like a 1,200-square-foot condo, for less than $800,000. Wow. So once you move to a, a, a house, that same 1,200-square-foot house would cost $1.2 million. And you're also you're not on a, a huge plot of land. The further you move into the suburbs, obviously, the houses are in Beverlywood, for example, the houses are bigger, but costs are also like 4 or $5 million for the house. Hancock Park, um, there are parts of Hancock Park that are very expensive and a very wealthy area. There are parts that are less so, but you're still not looking at a house for less than maybe 900000 or a million dollars. And I'm uh, guessing if you find like a small house, some developer is going to buy that and, and build a giant house on top of it. Yes. Yeah, so that that's a, hu- that's a huge problem in our community. So because there's a huge demand to live here right because it's the capital of la jewish the la jewish life is in this area we're not far from downtown and now we're not and now i'm going to talk about from a non-jewish perspective we're not far from downtown we're not far from century city and century city is another big hub uh, for workers there's going to be a google campus about three miles from here there's an apple they're building an apple campus that's not going to be very far from here in culver city which is also another area that, that people live. Um, it's, it happens to also be very centrally located in the city itself. So because of that, that will obviously drive up costs. I mean, we see that with rent all the time. Unless you live in a, a, an apartment that's rent controlled, you're looking at you know, a two bedroom apartment for 28, 29, $3,000 a month, um, which for a, a new family can be cost prohibitive. And so, as rental costs go up and for new families that are moving in, the, a, a ton of their money is going toward that. Even if you want to, and if you want a one bedroom, you're still looking at $2,400 a month. So that then affect, well, I want to buy a house. Well, okay, so how are you going to afford to buy that house? So you can save up all your money as much as you can, but you know, four houses down the street were bought for one and a half million dollars, torn down, built to the property line, and now uh, some developers trying to sell them for $4 million, for $5 million, which then, you know, perpetuates the cycle of, well, now I'm really never going to be able to move. So that's really, I would say for people who are trying to figure out what the landscape, I would say that's really the landscape here is that, you know, costs of these places, whether they're condos or houses, are just becoming totally unaffordable for people who even don't have bad incomes. If you're making $150,000, $200,000 as a couple, you know, these plays are still becoming so cost prohibitive that people are just figuring out, okay, so what's going to be our next step? Or where are we going to go? Exactly. And I do want to get into some of the ways that you're going about solving these issues. But I do want to bring up uh, one more thing, unless either of you have anything else to say on the home affordability issue. Because I think those are the specific things that are going on in LA, but they're very relatable to, to communities, at least here in New York where you have some that are affordable, but even those are rising rapidly. I don't know that I'd be able to afford my house today that I bought four years ago because the, the prices are going all the way up. And I feel like a lot of people in my community in West Hempstead, uh, Long Island, are having that same type of, uh, of experience. So the thing I'll, I would just add really quickly into like 
specifically in that note, what's really interesting about a certain Jewish areas in the city, um, not so true with the Valley, but becoming more and more true is that because of the way we spend money and the way that we hand down money across generations, there aren't crazy financial dips the same way that there are for non-Jewish uh, areas. In Robertson in uh, 2008, 2009, whenever the crash happened, house values dropped a little bit, but they didn't tank, right? Because we had a lot of people who were relatively financially secure or who had like enough funds to be able to like make it through or who hadn't taken risk mortgages and we didn't have as many local troubles in the community. So your values dipped because the, the economy dipped, but it wasn't crazy. The, the Even the house prices didn't dip that much. Like, yeah, some, some of them lost. There were some neighborhoods that the house prices went up even during that, during that crash. <laughs> I have one friend in the Valley. Like my hope for a long time was that there's going to be a dip. Um, there's going to be an economic dip and that's going to be my moment, right? Like I'm just going to wait and I'll rent and rent and rent until that moment comes. There's going to be a dip and then I'll buy a house and then I'll be, I'll, I'll have it, right? I'll have gotten in the right moment. I have one friend who did that in the Valley, um, but literally he found the only house on his block that like, the guy was just in the wrong place, uh, like financially in the wrong place, and he dipped the price and he managed to snap it. Yeah. Um, and he got a ridiculous deal. But that's one house in a huge area. The house values have basically doubled in and around there in the last since 2008. Since, the since last 2008. 2008. Right. So, wow. like, astronomical growth, da da da. Who knows what that's going to look like three years from now? Right. We we're sort of expecting a recession imminently, but like it's insane. And it's not something that like we'll be able to enter into easily. And the valley used to be a place where people would move because, you know, your your dollar would go further. Right. You get a bigger house. It's cheaper. That was the place that was like a place if you wanted to, you know, feel like you could have more control. But now the valley is while it's cheaper than, you know, the area that we live in, it's by no means cheap. Yeah, that's very similar to the things that are going on here. And so, like I said before, before we get into the solutions that you're talking about, I want to talk about one more kind of a self-inflicted wound on us. In terms of the house prices, that's not something we can't control house prices. Jewish education, where we have more of a say in it, it's still a long way to go. But I want to talk about a keeping up with the Schwartz's issue that we kind of have as a, as a community, that I think that there's area for easy curtailing of those things. When we're talking about, now you and I are, are we're around the same age. I'm 33, so I'm, I'm a couple years ahead of you, but my oldest is five years old. So I'm not, I'm not at the stage of bar and bat mitzvah costs, definitely not the case of wedding costs. Vacations can be cost prohibitive. If you ever want to build up on your house, that could be also. So a lot of these things are kind of self-inflicted wounds that we can probably prevent a lot sooner. Have you guys discussed those types of costs and what we can do to uh, curtail those? I think this is sort of the opposite side of it. When it comes to self-inflicted costs, like, sure, there's a lot of tilchacha we should all take um, on, like, taking a really good look at our budget and saying, was it necessary that I did X, Y, or Z? Did I have to, like, our shuls are very important to support, but did I have to give an extra donation so that I got my name out? So, that, right? Um, did I have to go buy the big chalas? Could I have done, you know, any number of other things, right, to keep up with everybody? Did I have to reciprocate every Shabbat invite immediately and have a massive meal? There's a ton of pieces there that we should look at. I would flip the question a little bit uh, to something we heard from a boomer who made it through. Who, yeah, who, like, described in, like, and not, like, just really owned his place and was was incredible. And it was just the most heartfelt moment of describing what it was like, that, like, his kids grappled with the idea of, like, that they were poor, even though, like, they really aren't, right? They have a ton of, of they own their home, their, their parents worked hard, um, had, you know, made a, a decent salary, but opposite everything else that exists, right? Like, they were left that they seemed they felt sort of or like their friends looked at what they had and and felt like they didn't have so much even though they had more than like i can dream of having in la and like that's the part that i think is like when we think of like keeping up with the, the steins right that's the part that that's killer to me about it it's not like okay i should trim my budget a little bit it's about like the people who are killing themselves working hard to try and get just to like a regular level but can't do it right? Because they don't have the family support. They didn't have this. They didn't have that. They didn't have everything else that existed. And like the feelings they're getting from being that, that place in the community. Yeah. Cause it's, I mean, yeah. Cause the people who are tr just trying to make it, those are the ones who are really hit the hardest. 
especially yeah. when they because we, we I mean we all just the ways that we grew up and I mean I I didn't realize that my parents did very well that my, my father did his house that their, my parents redid their house 30 years ago um I don't know, 25 whatever and to me I always and you, you just you don't really realize it because there are so many other people who just have so much more that there's less of trying to keep up with them it's more of just keeping your head above water exactly when i saw i saw what you guys wrote in your piece that you growing up you didn't realize really necessarily what it meant that other people had more ability more more financial stability than what you grew up with and you didn't necessarily realize the people who were less because you were kids you didn't, what do you know but now that we're getting to where the expenses are hitting us now we're well much more well aware of those things i'll add one more piece like my father passed away a couple of years ago but um he had a stroke before that three years before and my dad worked really hard every day of his life. He was self-employed. Um, he ran a company doing lighting design and 2008 happened and his business didn't turn around. Basically like knocked the floor out under what he had. Um, he had a couple bad clients and a couple of business deals that fell through um, and it just never quite recovered no matter how hard he tried. Looking at finances and trying to pull things out, right? Like when you couple the risk of entrepreneurship and keeping up with the signs, right? Like that was rough. Um, and it, yeah. it, like, you could see it in the numbers that like, both of those were stresses, right? Financial situation. Um, but thank God, like my brothers and I were all out of the house. We had made it through college or high school. We were, you know, we all put ourselves through college or are putting ourselves through college. Um, but it was fascinating for me to look back and like, look at numbers and look at things looked like that was yeah. my like serious exposure to it. Um, outside of like growing up and seeing what your parents you know, were able to do. I'm sorry you went through that. It seems like very recently. A couple of years ago. But uh... well, we've spent most of this conversation very bleakly going through this situation. I want to raise up the hope aspect of this. Let's talk about some of the things that you're proposing or you're looking into to help solving some of these situations. So I know that you guys are looking at potentially more affordable places, either close or far from LA. You want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things that came from our meetings was it, it was clear that the area that we live in is almost impossible to live in without help. And so L.A. itself has its own sort of baggage that, you know, some people wanted to have, some people didn't want to have. So we, we, we had a, a few different options um, and we as a group we were like okay so what are we going to move forward with so the first one obviously was stay in LA and try or stay in this area and see if we can have a moonshot and somehow make it work which people sort of felt that that was not a good use of time the next option was to really stay in stay within an hour of LA uh, because for various reasons career family uh, people felt that they needed to be close to LA but you know, once you go 40 miles out, so whether it be Long Beach or Agra Hills or Torrance or wherever, there you at least can take control of um, at least the housing aspect and potentially the schooling aspect, which would then be helpful, I guess, to and put the rest of your money to put towards wherever. There was an option of really just moving somewhere else and starting a community. That that also wasn't super popular because it. it it was, would be much harder than I think we would have thought. And then the last option was we all choose to move to an existing community um, and just, you know, have revitalized that community, whether it needs revitalization or just have like a, a nice young cohort come in to be a part of this new community in some other city, Houston, Jacksonville, Denver, wherever. So and, the, and which one had the most popular uh, response? The staying within an hour of LA and moving somewhere else. Oh, wow. So like the geographically closest and furthest options. So I will say that the, most of the people who choose to stay in L.A. are making, I mean, I think that the loudest voice um, is really comes from those whose careers are based here. Right. L.A. is an entertainment city. And so people who have jobs that are based on entertainment, whether that's, you know, uh, you're an entertainment lawyer or, you know, you're a filmmaker. L.A. is a really important place for you to be around. Um, and you'll suffer, right, the hour, hour and a half, three hours that it ends up being for you in a car to get to or from where you're going in order to make that work, which is 
is fair, right? I mean, it's increasingly becoming a technology city also. So people who eventually work for Google, Apple, my friends who work in, in tech right now, like they're fine where they are, but um, they're willing to move out a little bit farther and commute in order to make it work. Family is somewhat of a concern to those people, but if you're within like a couple hours drive, most people I think are okay with it. Uh, it's really a, a career move that people want to stay close. Um, there was one group of small group of people who were interested specifically in LA political issues and sort of being um, in like a, our synagogue specifically. And that is, they couldn't move from the synagogue. So it would be for their interest to be creating community somewhere nearby. Is it possible that both options succeed? Like some people stay close and some people move further. The way that we've evaluated options is by returning to a triangle or the, the uh, Trinity. You know, when you think about it, uh, if you stay in LA, you can maybe have one side of the triangle. If you're to move somewhere else an hour outside, you can maybe have two. And if you're to move far away, right, like a Houston or a Jacksonville or a Denver, um, you may be looking at all three, right? And that valuation, when you start future projecting, becomes hard for people to, to really understand the costs that are associated, um, no matter how much talk you have about it, right? So there's this sort of cognitive dissonance about Los Angeles and like, even if you move within an hour, you're still gonna end up paying Jewish day school prices in LA because real estate will rise in a place like Long Beach in 10 years. Um, and so like, I think we're somewhat skeptical about that option long-term, even though it's certainly popular now. And if you went now, you might do really well in 10 years, but there's also a little bit more risk associated there versus the other option, which is people leaving to different areas where I think you're guaranteed more sides of that triangle. The issue I'll say about with people leaving, um, we found the farther you go outside of LA, the uh, more sides your, your triangle takes on. Um, and all of a sudden goes from being a triangle to an octagon, whether that's the type of place people wanna live or what it seems like. And so we've, I think, adapted what that option might mean for us long-term more as a network of people across the, the nation where like, if someone from our community is looking to leave and to go somewhere else, they might be able to reach out to a network and be like, hey, where are people? And use that as an option of places to go um, to find like-minded people. Because yeah. that, that, that was really the, the biggest problem of, so, because for the people who were staying in LA or in an hour of LA, um, you were able to at least have the communal aspect of what we what we what we currently have. So if we start a community in Long Beach, for example, which is about an hour, uh, 45 minutes, an hour away on a good day, you can set up a satellite shoal. So you get the shoal, you get the shoal aspect, you get the community of people that are there because you're, you're moving with your friends or like-minded people, whatever. And so while you might be giving up some financial stability, you at least have a lot of the things that you want right. from a communal perspective. Once you move out of LA, the issue is how do you bring other people with you? Because the, the cities that people choose, they're choosing them for a reason. And so what might resonate with Zach to move to a city is not going to resonate with me. So how, how, how do you get a group of people to move somewhere else where they may not have any connection to? There's also the thought of with a town like that, consider some of this like a kind of an invasion like oh the la people they're coming to uh, to houston they're going to change our our thought process well, on how uh, things work it would be, it would be it, we wouldn't go to a place without like because the, it would be in conjunction with whatever the community is there i will say i think on the jewish world i don't see it as much i think a lot of jewish congregations in smaller areas um, are very open to welcoming and like we've seen are very open to welcoming more Jews to their town, even if they're not totally like in the same agreement. The thing that I thought was funny when you mentioned it is that there was an article, I think about Delaware, maybe not Delaware, or a, one of the Dakotas, uh, something with a D, I don't know, like a couple weeks ago that I thought of, uh, the state created a program where if you work remotely, you can get paid essentially to buy land in, in the state and move there. Um, where it's like, oh, look, viable option. That sounds great. Um, and if you continue to read the article, it says that like residents are really like they don't like people from Los Angeles who have overwhelmingly started moving there. Um, and so <laughs> residents of the area are revolting. But I think that's that's more of something that's happening happening inside of a secular box more than something or like a, a non-Jewish box specifically um, versus one that Jews are involved in. Exactly. So for those of you that want to stay in L.A., is there anything that you're doing specifically that's targeting tuition costs? Because that was the bulk of our conversation earlier. Uh, no. 
because it seems <laughs> no, because it, it it's it doesn't seem like and correct me if I'm wrong. It doesn't seem like we really have buy-in from any of these places. Like we there are a, a lot of things that can be done, but it doesn't seem that a there's buy-in from any of these places, and b that there's there's obviously a need, but it doesn't seem like any of these schools have yet to really look they're, they're not really so affected by it yet that there's a, a reason for them to start tackling this now yeah the only thing i would say is that um and it, we aren't doing anything about it and i think it's it's more because we don't have the leverage or the political power to make it happen i think we tried an avenue of generating political power which was like trying for groundswell and it was met with uh, you know, like we put a piece out in a Jewish publication and no, there was no response from leadership, right? Um, you know, we are actively looking and want to partner with legacy organizations and senior level philanthropists to make real change on that issue. But there really has been a, a lack of interest and inability, uh, uh, lack of willingness to come to a table um, to discuss it. The thing I will say is we have a, a close friend um, who works very closely with legacy organizations, and he's been hounding them for years on this issue. So not that we can count his work for work that we've done, um, but we have seen a pattern of like lack of willingness to come to the table on it. And so like I think that's that's where we're at with it. Like there are people who are trying, and great for them to try. We're going to have to try and work on a different angle. Yeah, and and um, yeah, because and those are also people who ha who have the means to really tackle this head on right they're much more much better equipped to do this than we are yeah all right is there anything else that you think is important information that you that you, that you think listeners should know um it's a, a short narrative but an important one um we spoke to a friend of ours david you know about this issue specifically and one of the things that he said that you know really uh rang true was that he lived in la seven now eight years ago and left for school um all of his friends, you know, eight years ago or seven years ago, were talking about this issue and saying, like, we can't stay in L.A., it's too unaffordable, da da, da. And uh, he finished his schooling, finished all of his, like, finished, uh, was working in a different city, moved back, um, and he's like, and seven years later, here we all, like, all of them have left and moved elsewhere, and we're still, say, like, we're back here at this place having the same conversation, you know, and people who've responded to our article from L.A., you have said, like, we had this conversation in L.A. 30 years ago, and it's still an issue. More information, uh, things that people need to know. They need to know that this is an issue that is going to, like, it's not just affecting us. It's affecting non-Jews as well. But if we don't solve this for ourselves, like, we're not going to be able to live here. Like, a lot of people reached out and said Aliyah was a great option. Aliyah is a good option. But if that works for you, right, um, we need to start looking at real solutions to these issues, whether or not that's starting a community elsewhere or that's legacy organizations working with us, the power is in your hands. We just need to demand enough of it in order to make it work. I mean, the only thing I would add is that, you know, I, I see this all the time with people putting money away. It's that the earlier you start, the better it is for yourself, right? And I would give the same advice for those who are listening is that the longer we wait to tackle any of these issues, the harder it will be to really accomplish anything. And so this is something that we really should not only, people have been talking about this for a long time, but it, it's, we really need to take action. Otherwise it's, it's not us, but it's the generation X, it's their kids. When they start finishing college and they move back and you know, how are they gonna have a home or afford school? And then our kids, and it's just, it's- Just kicking the can down the road. Yeah, and all, all that will do will, will make it impossible to fix later. And so, you know, for those who care about the future of, of the Jewish community, this is the future. And so what, what are we going to do to fix it? I'll add real fast before I, whatever you say, but like, I think I'll speak for Benny and I, we both welcome comments, partners, questions, willingness to talk about and solve this issue. Our contact info is available online or we'll provide it to your audience however we do that. Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to ask you. How can people reach out to you? Uh, you could plug that the, the website where your article is and any means of contact for them to reach out to you. It was on eJewish Philanthropy. We probably, it was posted in August, so you're going to have to search for it. <laughs> I easily found it by searching for your name. So if you want to just yeah. give your okay. names again and spell them so that people know. Benny, I feel yours is going to be a lot easier. Yeah, <laughs> it's with a Y, not an I or an IE. 
Benny Smith. Benny Smith, very easy. Uh, and you can find me, um, or my name is Zach Morrow, Z-A-C-H-M-O-R-R-O-W, like tomorrow. That's also zachmorrow.com if you want to find contact info or whatever else. I think that you you might receive some contact information, not just from people in LA, obviously, Like, but this is an issue that we're dealing with here in New York, young professionals that live in the handful of communities that are available to them here. Obviously, we're going to have a lot more people here than you guys have in LA, but this is an issue that's not only being discussed by you, it's being discussed throughout the Orthodox world and beyond, I'm assuming. But yeah, thank you, Benny, Zach. Thank you guys so much for joining us. And I hope to speak to you again soon. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. My thanks to Benny Smith and Zach Morrow for joining us this week. One more note. After we finished recording, Zach mentioned that some schools are considering a tuition freeze meaning that the tuition that you enter the school paying is the tuition you finish paying when the child graduates. This would be a welcome change and provides many prospects to future generations. We'd love to hear your ideas on improving some of the financial burdens on today's firm populations, and whether some of the issues we may have missed on today's show warrant further delving into. Reach out to us on social media or use the hashtag FromFinances. We'd also love to hear your opinion via email on any of the topics discussed today or on previous episodes. Until next week, Cult of... The Jewish Living Podcast is produced by Sroli Pikus. Our theme song is The Band by A.B. Rottenberg from Journeys 4. You can email the show at jewishlivingpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Jewish underscore living. The Jewish Living Podcast is recorded in conjunction with the Queen's Jewish Link. <laughs>